0: Welcome to the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. We are excited to have Dr. Dan Myers, President of Misericordia University, as our guest. Well, let's talk a little bit about your journey, if that's all right. Sure. I mean, what led you to the presidency? Like, talk about that path.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I started off uh, coming out of grad school. I, I started working at Notre Dame. I was a faculty member at Notre Dame. And I was there for 17 years, and I did various administrative roles there too as I moved through the ranks and so forth. But um, when I left and went to Marquette University to be the provost, uh, there's a different challenge in terms of bringing students to the university than there was at uh, Mar- at Notre Dame, which you know at top uh, attracts absolutely top draw door students and turns away thousands of students every year they'd love to have it's just you know and their graduation retention rate their success rate is through the roof and so it's not something we spent a lot of time thinking about or worrying about at notre dame but it was at marquette and retention really making sure students persisted and got through was a much much bigger uh, issue challenge it was part of our strategic plan and we spent a lot of, of our uh, time thinking time and money investing in trying to help the university do better with getting students through to graduation. And so then when I went to American University to be the provost there, it was ramped up to an even higher level. And so, you know, there's just a really strong um, uh, uh, focus on retention and and graduation. So I learned a lot about it from being at those two schools. And in my latter uh, days of being an American, I was writing a book about, graduation retention rates and Mm. looking at them across the country and trying to figure out why some universities do so much better with this than others. And I'm giving you a somewhat longer version of this, but, you know, chop it up as you see fit. Um, the, but the, uh, the the primary factor, the biggest factor, and this is not a secret or anything. This is not some big reveal I'm making right now, is that the you know the kind of background, the privilege of the students has so much to do with whether they succeed or not. I mean, if they have money to support them, to help them pay their tuition, if they've had access to good education all the way through. Uh, until they get to college, they're going to succeed at very high rates. And so those privilege markers are extremely powerful. I mean, that's the the surprising thing is not that they're powerful, but that how powerful they are. In fact, they count for more than 90% of the differences in graduation retention rates in the United States across all the different colleges, more than 90% of it is controlled by just a handful of privilege factors. And so then you don't have a lot more to work with in terms of intervention space, <laughs> you know, because so much of it is just controlled by what you're bringing to the table in terms of your background. So, so I devised a way of doing this in the book where I control for those privilege factors first. So I correct for those, and then I see how the um, different colleges and universities do at getting students through to graduation, and and so you know, and some of them do you know, fine, they're kind of reflecting the privilege of their students. Some of them don't do as well as the privilege markers. They're not even living up to the potential of their students. And some of them actually beat the odds. They actually do better than would be predicted by their student body. And I, so I ran all the universities in the country through that system, I ranked them, and there was a school up there at the top that I barely knew anything about, Miss Ricordia University. Number two in the country, and it, wow. was beat, it was only beaten by one school that happened to be a state school, so it's, a, it's the number one private school, and its graduation rate is 21 points higher than would be predicted by the characteristics of its student body. That's astonishing it's a powerful record and i thought wow this is so interesting what is going on at this place <laughs> and so i interviewed people at my top 10 schools and i just called up you know the provost at the schools i said hey let me have 45 minutes with your whoever your retention guru is at your school and I, so i can just kind of pick their brain and understand what you're doing that's making you so darn successful doing this stuff and, uh, and so I did, and they were great interviews. The uh, people I talked to, they're just the people that work in that space. They're just so dedicated to students and trying to figure out how to help them succeed. You know, it was wonderful to talk to all those folks. And then I wrote a chapter in the book um, talking about those different strategies that people were using. But when I got on with Ms. Recordia, there wasn't one person for 45 minutes. They had their whole retention team. Seven people got on the Zoom call with me and they're thinking, about what they were doing was so smart and so penetrating, and they were so dedicated to what they were doing. And I, I was just blown away by them. And they stayed on for an hour and a half, not 45 minutes. Uh, you know, they double gave me double the time, times seven people. I mean, you know, that was amazing. I was like, wow, these people really care. And I got off the Zoom call and I turned to my partner Kristen and I said, These are the kind of people I want to work with, right here. These people, they care. They know what they're doing. They're you know they're really thinking about this and doing it the right way and the, and the and i looked around the presidency was open <laughs> so i said somebody is speaking to me <laughs> and yeah. it was also funny because i didn't even know where it was honestly and i was driving from dc up to visit my parents in syracuse and I'm driving up 81 there's a sign I pass. I'm about, I'm about halfway there. And I pass the sign that says, exit here for Mr. Cordier University. <laughs> and I thought, wow, you know, the, the, the universe is coming together here. So I got in the search and, you know, it was a match made in heaven. It's been a wonderful place for me to be here. So
0: that's a long t- story, t- but. <laughs> yeah, and that's a tough market too. In Pennsylvania? It is. That's a tough market. So I, I gotta ask, so yeah, your, your retention rates, you know, whether it be fall to fall or first year to sophomore, I, those are the, some of the highest marks I've seen.
1: They are high and especially for who the student body is. These are not privileged kids. Uh, you know, we've done an analysis of, you know, the family background and stuff and everything that all these consumer markers, uh, with our students, uh, and, you know, we, these aren't, these are not rich kids. These are not, you know, there are people who are they're they're kind of coming a lot of them from working class backgrounds. It's been it's a real struggle for their parents to send them to school here, and you know and that's part of how this thing works here though is that we're like, damn, these people are making a real commitment to their kids, you know, by trying to do this, and we want to make sure it works, and and that's part of the magic of, of this place is that that vibe exists throughout the university, the faculty, the staff. I really. I mean, everybody says their university is unique and it's so wonderful. And you know, look at the, the uh, material on the web and what we used to call view books. I don't even know if you know, people really look at oh, yeah. view books anymore, but you know, everybody says how great they are and unique they are. But there is something different here that's ramped up to a different level in terms of their investment in student success that is, I mean, it's very powerful. And so, you know, one of my challenges here is to get that message out to more people and have them understand that sending their kid here to us is gonna be a winning proposition and they're not gonna have to worry about them dropping out or, you know, having to start over at another school after a year or something, you know, because we're we're gonna help them. We're gonna figure out what's going on with them and make sure that we're intervening if something is getting out of step a little bit so we can correct it before it turns into a big problem.
0: So. Well, and I'll tell you, that's a, that's a pretty unique take. I think when we talk to presidents and institutions, there's such a focus on enrollment, which for good reason, sure. but I, you know, I, I think it's safe to say that sometimes enrollment and the focus on enrollment has really been at a level here compared to, well, once we get the student in, Let's make sure we keep the student and see him graduate.
1: And that is a huge mistake. Anybody who uh, thinks like that is, is missing the boat because, you know, and that's one of the things I say in my book. I'm like, you know, retention is about enrollment. <laughs> you know, the last time yeah. I checked, a student who goes four years with you pays a lot more tuition than a student who just goes one year, right? And so it, it is very, very important um, for the, for the, in the self interest of the institution as well but certainly of course it is for the student and you know and you know putting those together in the right way and really recognizing the symbiotic value of thinking about enrollment and retention together is is a winning strategy you know and so there's no question we we are you know even though we're one of the best around we actually think we can do better and so we're entering into a 5-year project to try to ramp up our culture around retention and getting people to graduation. So we're going to try to do more. We're going to adjust some things we do with financial aid, we're going to change some things in the student life experience, uh, you know, and we're just going to try to take that great culture we have and just take it up another notch or two and see if we can do even better. And I'm excited to try to do that because you know, there's nothing like, you know, being on top and then saying, "You know what?" Last year we won 64 games in the NBA regular season, and next year we're going to try to win 75. You know, <laughs> try to beat the Bulls' uh, record. You know, and uh, you know, and but that's a great energy. It's a great place to be in terms of you know driving uh, forward with the work that you're doing. So,
0: you know, well, and, know. and and so are the strategies different for because you do have a mix of online students and and on campus.
1: Yeah. We do
0: uh, are
1: though, you know, for undergraduates, our, you know, our bread and butter is on campus experience. We believe very strongly for that age group, that that thick experience where there's a lot going on and you're engaged and connected to people in a lot of different ways is the best. Now that doesn't mean online is bad. Um, and there, in my view, there's a place for online. I don't want it to dominate an 18 to 22 year old student experience I want it to be a part of it though and I think it's a very important way for us to learn how to teach and for them to learn how to learn because they're going to have to do that for the rest of their lives you know I used to say that about big classes I taught the biggest class at Notre Dame for a long time it was there were 473 seats in the room and they were full Okay, so and a lot of people have negative things to say about big classes and they're so anonymous and there's no participation. It's not interactive. That's that does not have to be true if you do it well and you have the right person running the class. Uh, um, Me and another guy who was really good at it, too. Also, he was an anthropology professor. And he, we both taught these very, and we were always duking it out to uh, see who could teach the biggest class. But we were both really good at this. I'm not trying to toot my own horn. I just, it's something that I developed over time. And he and, and he was great at it too. We both won teaching awards for teaching in that, um, that setting, but we would work together. We would try things and we would swap ideas and we really learned how to make it interactive. But I didn't want that to be for everyone all the time. I thought that was something that should be part of their experience because they're gonna have to learn in that way uh, in other times in their life. They're gonna have to go to some seminar in a big hotel room someday and, you know, sit there and they gotta learn, you know? And so we wanted to teach people how to do that. But, uh, and it's the same thing with online, you know? So it should be a part, but it's, you know, for that age group, I don't think it should take over everything because you miss some of those other elements. So places are trying to figure out how to build more of that thickness and those those kind of um, auxiliary kinds of experiences for online students. But it's really hard. I was down at Grand Canyon uh, visiting with them a couple of years back, and we were talking about this problem. I mean, they we have 100,000 online students yeah. now, I think. And uh, you know, and I was talking to Brian, uh, the president, Brian Mueller, the president. And, you know, and, and you know, they're a Christian school, and so they have a big emphasis on that part of their identity and that part of the experience for students. And so we went to the, the big chapel um, meeting, which was great. I mean, you know, hundreds and hundreds of students there, and it was very exciting and very engaging. You know, they had the band up there and the really dynamic speaker. And I said, and I turned to, I said, Brian, this is so great. I said, wait. How do you engage online students with this? And he kind of looked at me and said, you know, we just haven't figured out how to do it. You know, he said, they can stream this, but obviously it's not the same experience. And that's been the case with a lot of these elements of a student experience that aren't as easy to replicate with online. Now, when you're talking about graduate students, they have a different need and a different life that doesn't it doesn't require as much of that kind of stuff. And so I think the online world can be a lot better for them um, and they can manage it better and it fits their life better. But I think for uh, students coming out of high school and still kind of making that transition into independence and so forth, that, um, that it, you know, if, it's, if that's all they're doing, they're probably not getting the best educational experience that they could.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you know, when, you, when you talk about a liberal arts education um, you know, and let, let's talk about, kind of tie that into the job market. So, you know, you look 10 years from now, there's jobs that don't even exist today. that are going to be around in 10 years and vice versa. Absolutely. You know, and so there's, there's that debate, especially now, of the value of an education. Oh, it's too much. I don't want to take on student debt. Hey, I can go get a job and get paid well. Yep. Um, can you talk a little bit about the value of education, the value of uh, liberal arts education, and and you know what why should someone earn their degree for their career
1: yeah well you know here's here's a little exercise for you some you know as you're going through your life and i've been doing this for years i because i want not because i was trying to prove something about liberal arts education it was just you know I, I just wanted to know so when i encounter someone who is a successful ceo or you know cfo or coo of a company and you know or in whatever way they've been successful uh, you know, a lot of times these big business people are, are one, good good people to ask us, and just ask them what was the most important thing, the most important educational experience they had as an undergraduate that helped them throughout their career, and helped them to be as successful as they were. I can't think of one time <laughs> that one of those people didn't tell me something from their liberal arts curriculum. They that's what they go back to and say that's what stuck with me, that's what helped me, that's what made me able to. Negotiate my way through as I was getting promoted and being and having to work in different jobs and di- with different groups of people and things. Is it was the liberal arts stuff, and so I don't know. I mean, it's fifteen years ago or now. Something I wrote a, a, a chapter in a book, uh, and it, it was called something like I don't remember now. It was something called something like the Practical Liberal Arts, and I was trying to make the case that as you move, you know, not me, you know, people get too focused on preparation for that first job but we're trying to prepare people for life here. And so, you know, the things that you get from the liberal arts uh, part of your curriculum, critical thinking, the ability to write, the ability to speak to a group of people in an effective way, to organize your thoughts, to read complex material and distill the important stuff out of it, the ability to sort out the signal from all the noise that's around us right now, you know, the, the immense amount of data that's coming at us. That's what you get from the liberal arts, and those are absolutely essential skills um, to progress in life and, and to be successful in virtually any job that requires a college degree, right? Um, and so that's and so I, you know, when people ask me about the 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 most important things to do to prepare them for for work life after uh, after college, I. I, I bear down on this liberal arts stuff because I think it's so um, important as an asset, as a human, as a, as a human asset to, to help me do the things that I'm going to need to do as I go through, as you said, these multiple job changes and have to not only um, move into jobs that don't exist now, but invent them, construct them, they're going to have to do that. And so, so I that's that's my response to to that, and I think it's absolutely right. I mean, and yeah. it's proven out by me asking these people. <laughs>
0: so, yeah. Well, and so, so how do you, you know, when when we talk to presidents, I think almost in any case, uh, the community, local community in particular, is so integral to the institution, and vice versa. Um, can you talk a little bit about the business partnerships you've developed and? just what what the local community means to you and again especially going back to Pennsylvania just how saturated the market is
1: yeah well so so i've been here not even a year yet so um Uh, So I'm still learning, but I've spent a lot, I've invested a lot of my time this first year in getting to know who's out there and what's out there and how we might do better to connect with them. Because, you know, I just start off with the orientation that the university is just a critical element. Uh, A a good university is a critical element in any community, in any region. And uh, it needs to have, uh, it needs to understand that region, needs to have a clear understanding of what's going on out there and how we can both benefit from and help the what's going on in the region, right? Because we can bring expertise in a way, we can bring training in a way, we can address a certain portion of the workforce development um, uh, um, challenge uh, that 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 others can't in 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 ways that can be very very helpful. And so um, the. Um, what was I going to say about that? So, so here in this area, for example, uh, we have these, you know, this incredible kind of warehouse and distribution um, uh, operation that has developed in this area of northeastern Pennsylvania because of where we're kind of located between DC and Philadelphia and New York and so on. And so, it's really become quite a crossroads. And and you know, and the um, the realities of COVID too have really revealed this. Um, dearth of expertise in supply chain and logistics that's a real problem right and so there's a huge demand in this area and there's an emerging understanding that this is a really important part of our business operations across the country and across the globe and so uh so we're putting up a supply chain major next year and uh, it'll be uh It's been, I'm waiting for the last final vote from the faculty, which will happen this week or next, but, uh, and so we'll have that. And I think we're the only one that has that, that uh, major in our business school right around here. And so that's just an example of really understanding what's going on around us, and then figuring out how we bring our assets to bear on that particular need or that particular problem. So uh, there's all kinds of opportunities out there. This place is really good at um, leveraging internships for students, but I think we can do more. And we've set a goal to increase our internship partnerships by uh, 50% over the next five years during our strategic planning uh, cycle. And so, uh, so we'll be trying to engage more uh, businesses. Uh, there's, there's no doubt that Miss Ricordia is well-regarded in this area, but the business school I think has been somewhat underdeveloped. And so, you know, we're going to take the opportunity to try to grow that in a bigger way over the next uh, over the next five-year cycle. Here, we're just going to have our
0: strategic plan approved by the board here in our next board meeting here in June, so. So one of the things that Plexus wants to become in 10 years or far less uh, is to become a household name. So where Misericordia, where do you wanna be in 10 years? Well, uh, boy,
1: it'd be nice to have people be able to pronounce our name,
0: (laughs) we start with that.
1: it's funny you said that because I, I have been, we were just, I was just talking with my uh, my chief, chief of staff this morning about taglines and things for the, for our university branding, you know, and it, you know, it's challenging for us because that misrecording a name is a mouthful and people look at it, they don't know how to say it. I'm so pleased that you're saying it correctly, uh, Brad. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, you know, we, I think we have the potential and we have a need because, as you know, the high school population is dropping in the U.S., but it is dropping in this area of the country at twice the rate it's dropping elsewhere. Right, so it's 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 really challenging environment. There's a lot of schools around here. There's 93 private uh, colleges and universities in Pennsylvania. I mean, it's really <laughs> you talk about a crowded market. Right. Um, so so it's tough. Um, but um, I think. Uh, there's so, so we're going to try to reach out further geographically that's one of our that's one of our aims and we've tried to put some strategies in and work with some cult consultants to help us do that. Uh, we think we have a lot to offer this particular kind of population I've been talking about. Uh, and you know there's no reason we can't draw them in further. There are some um, high school populations that are growing though Hispanic students obviously is one, and we're a Catholic school there's a cultural affinity there we're going to try to work on that. Um, so, uh, and we believe that we have the muscle to really help those students succeed. We, we feel we've demonstrated that. And so it's a really good place for um, students to land, first-gen students and things like that, because we have developed these systems that help keep them online and get them through to graduation in a really uh, great way. So, um, so so I think that's uh, some of it. I, I do think uh, i mentioned the business school. This is a big uh, focus of my um, activity in the next few years, because I think we can do, a lot more and do a lot better uh, with our business school and it's just you know every institution has a history of how things developed and so I'm not criticizing or blaming anyone it's just the way things uh, developed here um, and so we're going to try to do some things with that uh, that'll be that'll I think will be very exciting um, uh, and so uh, so I what I would expect us to look like in in 10 years I think with somewhat bigger than we are now not huge we love this um, this really intimate vibe that we have and students who are looking for that kind of thing, this is a great place to find it. And I don't have anything against big schools, by the way. I went to Ohio State as an undergraduate. I went to Wisconsin for my PhD. Those are gigantic schools. My daughter, my son went to Indiana. My daughter went to Ohio State. They loved it. They had a great experience. Um, there's, there's wonderful things uh, to get from those kinds of schools, no question about it, but there's also really great things to get from schools like ours. And uh, and I think that um, uh, so we you know we we want to grow some, but I, I don't think we're we're looking to become some behemoth either. We're, we we want to maintain this this intimacy that allows us to have such direct um, contact, intervention, insight into our students.
2: Um, President Myers, uh, first of all, love to, your level of energy is really contagious. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely. And also, you you made a basketball reference. The Go Warriors. Uh, we're in the Bay Area, so we're, we're a little biased here. But <laughs> that's right. Um, that's
1: right. I, 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 being a Chicago Bulls fan, I was suffering when they were. We were they looked like they were. Good.
2: <laughs> 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 that was a tough season for me. So, oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> you, you, and they're turning it around, though. So it, it, it was a better season this this year. Chicago. Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: yeah. Um, talk to us. I mean, it's interesting because when you look at the history of universities, a lot of them started like through land grant and in the late 1800s and what have you. Why 1924? Give us a little history and a background of your school. And why was it in the 20s? What brought it? What is the history behind the campus? It would, that, that would be really helpful to our listeners. Uh, well, I,
1: I think the, you know, you know, there's, there's sort of different versions of, of the history <laughs> and what the university was founded for and some people say it was founded to educate the daughters of coal miners um, mm-hmm. which seems to maybe not be entirely true at least <laughs> um, certainly a lot of coal miners daughters did attend here that's absolutely true in fact the board of the chair of our board of trustees right now she is literally one of these people <laughs> she yeah. was a she is a coal miner's daughter and, uh, you know, and it really uh, changed her life. Now, you know, but I think it was, you know, I think there was just a empty, there was a vacuum in this area in terms of higher education for women. I mean, I really think that's what it was. And these uh, nuns, the Sisters of Mercy, really set out to try to address that uh, need. And it wasn't specifically for coal miners' daughters, it was for you know, women in general. Um, this universe, and it, it struggled in the early years as many schools did. It was also it was the target of some really nasty um, um, activity from the Klan and so forth. There was a cross burning, a huge one um, out behind the campus, threatening. At at the time, the Klan was very anti-Catholic, and so that was part of it. Um, but, uh, it, you know, but, and they did a, a wonderful job here too of reaching out to the Jewish community. And so many, uh, many women who were Jewish attended Misericordia. And there's been a strong um, connection between the Sisters of Mercy, Misericordia, and the Jewish community around here as well. So, so, so there's, a, there's a sense of um, providing something that wasn't available to people. Uh, to certain kinds of people, um, that's part of the history of this place. And I think that's part of why it does so well with the things it does, because it's it's got that uh, vibe, it's got that in it's, 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 its fundamental constitution um, that is trying to reach out to people who wouldn't otherwise be able to have the same full access to education um, and, and really providing it to them. And, and so that's, I, I think, some of the history of the place. It became co-ed um, in the early 70s sometime. And it, it, it didn't, it, there wasn't a moment when you could just say, bam, it was co-ed because they started letting uh, men take a class or two in the graduate programs or something first. And then it kind of drifted in and eventually they started um, admitting men as regular undergraduate students. So, but it was in the early 70s and a lot of Catholic schools became co-ed in that general time frame um, so it's it's nothing unusual but for a long time they were kind of seen as the sister school to King's College which is in Wilkesbury here and so that's where the men went Catholic school uh, it's the uh, um, the order of the Holy Cross the same group that runs Notre Dame is runs King's College and uh, and the Sisters of Mercy uh, school up here with the women and so and there are many many of our alums who are it's a it's a couple where the man is from Kings and the woman is from uh, Miss Ricordia here and so that that relationship existed for quite some time uh, and you know you you go back and you you talk to guys you know that are old enough to be around when it was just a women's school and they say yeah we'd go up there and try to meet women that was <laughs> that's what we do that's where we'd go to find uh, find girlfriends and find. Um, Wives, you know, in the end, and and uh, and so there's a lot of that history uh, too in terms of the connection between those two schools. So there's a little bit of it.
2: No, that's very helpful, and you're one of the few president who actually has not just a TikTok channel, but also a Wikipedia. Uh, which... <laughs> yes,
1: there's a Wikipedia entry too. Yes, yeah.
2: yeah, so I, I I did read your Wikipedia, and I do want to get back to TikTok, but I, I want to kind of stay with Wikipedia and. It's said that your father was a Baptist minister, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Yes. And, and, and all your school, you've been at Notre Dame, Marquette, uh, always in Catholic school. So t- tell us a background of your history and, you know. <laughs> well, yeah.
1: well, not only my dad is a Baptist minister, but my mom uh, became one in the later part of her life as well. Oh, yeah. And so I had two of them. <laughs> there so but uh yeah that was a big part of my life growing up no question about it. church life was central to everything that we did um and uh, but i went to and we didn't have any money though ministers don't make diddly squat <laughs> and uh you know we we it was tough growing up we we essentially lived in poverty most of almost all of my growing up years no question about it and uh, so when I went to school, I ended up, I went to Ohio State, because I, we were in Ohio at the time, in state tuition. I got some scholarships uh, from Ohio State and from local uh, in the things in the town. I was in Zanesville, Zanesville Ohio, uh, from, uh, you know, um, a donor of benefactors who set up scholarships in that town. And so I was able to go to Ohio State for very little money, at least the first couple of years. And then I ended up working, you know, night security and doing all the things that you have to struggle through. I was a janitor in a typewriter factory, and I worked at a beer drive through and, you know, did all the things you have to do to survive and get through school. And so, you know, I'm, I, the, the story of students here at this school is familiar to me because I lived it. Um, but, uh, and then I went to, um, I worked at Ohio State for a few years, and then I went to Wisconsin for my PhD but when I came out I mean I you know I was just trying to get a job <laughs> and so and I got a few offers from various places and but uh, Notre Dame ended up seeming like the best deal now I could be honest with you and say that I did not appreciate the religious and catholic nature of Notre Dame when I went there I thought it was like so many private schools in the United States that have they had a religious identity back in the day uh, but it they drifted away from it years ago and some of them have even explicitly uh, said that they're not um, they're not religious or affiliated with a religious uh, denomination anymore and I thought you know Notre Dame is probably like that too whatever I'm going to go there and do my faculty business and and I went there and I found out that wasn't true <laughs> and it, you know I was adjusting a little because I wasn't Catholic and I was used to, you know wasn't used to all the different things that were part of that and that kind of student experience either, because I've been in state schools, you know, when I uh, had my education. Um, But I came to understand it and appreciate it over a couple of years, and I I sort of learned how to leverage the student's Catholic identity to engage them in really important things that were uh, were important for them to to think about as as part of their education, And, and it ended up being a really great place for me to be. Um, I was able to get a lot of research done there, and it was a great place to be a young faculty member, and I got promoted into all these different kinds of uh, administrative positions, and so it ended up being a really good place for me. Um, <clears throat> Marquette uh, it was even better uh, in many ways. The Jesuit identity was something that really resonated with me uh, personally on a very, very deep level, and some of those, uh, the priests at Marquette are still some of my very, very best friends because they you know they just they just brought me into a new place of understanding about myself and what i wanted to do as an educator um so it was wonderful american isn't catholic so i wasn't one school who wasn't catholic <laughs> <laughs> people don't realize this but it's a methodist school it's a methodist school um and, uh, and so you know it still had uh definitely had tones of uh, of a spirit uh, that was connected to, to religious training. Now, I think it's drifted away from that a lot over the years, but they still are a Methodist school and there's are people from the Methodist denomination serve on the board of trustees and things, but it's not it's not quite as full a part of the student experience there as it was at Notre Dame or Marquette or something like that. But But when I went looking for a presidency, I actually went through this little exercise, looking at their mission and trying to figure out, first of all, if that mission resonated with me and secondly, were they really living it? Because everybody has a mission statement and they all you know, sound wonderful and you know, they're all about the students and the da da da, yeah. But are they really doing it? And I, as soon as I saw at a place, some sign that they weren't, I, they went in my no column. I didn't bother with them anymore. And the ones that were left that really seemed to have something going on were almost all of them were Catholic schools. And so they've retained that connection to mission in a stronger way than most universities have. And that was really important to me. When I interviewed here, I was driving people crazy, I think, because I said, okay, you've got this mission statement. It sounds wonderful. You talk about it, your charisms and it's just, you know, sounds great. Tell me how you experience that on the ground in your daily work at Miss Recordia. And I did that with other places too, but and, but their answers here were just great. People had something to say. They knew what the mission was and they uh, could talk about how it was actually being lived uh, at, at this university. And so I, I just loved that. And I thought, man, that is such a powerful resource to do the work that we are trying to do in higher education, to have that to draw on as you're trying to lead and try to motivate people and try to um, figure out what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. It's an amazing resource and so
2: here i am <laughs> no, that's fantastic and when mr Cordia was actually looking for a president did they have non-catholic presidents before you or were you the first um, yes they have
1: they have okay. and they started having lay presidents oh a, a long time ago back in the 70s i think okay. and so it wasn't as uh foreign i wasn't as foreign of a character to them as it would be at some places i mean some places are still you know they, they still have not had a lay uh, president and some are many are just having their first one now it's happening because the numbers of priests and sisters is, is getting so small that they, they just can't find them anymore um so there's a lot of turnover but that that's a that's a rough transition for a lot of places but that had happened here years ago and so that that wasn't a problem uh for me coming in the door
2: so with the i I did not have this question but you you touched upon something very important which is faith-based institutions and obviously you hear about liberty right as -hmm. being this you know mega you know faith-based institutions there are smaller baptist colleges all various denominations i mean obviously we know the history of the rockefellers and how they really support a lot of baptist institutions and and, and th- th- there are a lot of faith-based that they started classes of Bible and, and what have you, and, and, and they're very to the book. So when you actually analyze faith in an institution, how do you define it? I mean, it, you said, is it the, the embodiment of an action? I mean, how is that? How do you go from dogma to actual, you know, practice and spirit? Of it?
1: Right. No, that's a great question. And, you know, and it's, I'll just go back to my experience at Notre Dame as was one way to illustrate this. And so I'm a sociologist, which you mm-hmm. picked up from the Wikipedia entry, I guess. Yes. Uh, and uh, I'm sure it says it in there somewhere. <laughs> oh, yes. And so, you know, it, it, sociology is very much concerned with social issues and social problems and all the challenges that we face in our society and, our, and in poli- and political uh, uh, relationships and so on. Uh, you know, that's that's really what it's about. And at the beginning, you know, I was, you know, these kids at Notre Dame, they tend to be uh, on the average uh, quite affluent uh, students from suburban Catholic high schools. Okay, that's sort of the modal student at Notre Dame and getting them to even understand how people across the world live in poverty and that, you know, the average income in annual income in Ethiopia at the time I last taught this class was like $262. I mean, they couldn't fathom that. You know, they spend more on gas in a month than that, you know. And I was really struggling with how to help them appreciate the reality of other people's lives, right? And uh, so, and, but I, I struck on it because I started to understand their faith journeys. And, and a lot, there's a lot of stuff in Catholicism about preferential option for the poor and how we Catholic social thought and how we need to care about others and be concerned about these kinds of things. And I was able to use that even if it was a superficial commitment, but they had some kind of commitment through their faith, through their Catholic identity to social justice and to these kinds of difficult social issues. And I was able to use that to pull them into a conversation that was a lot deeper and help them to think about the structures that were behind these things that they were had a superficial concern about. And so that's, that's just, it's just one example, but it's how you, you know, attach faith to the things that people are studying in a way that can motivate them into a new kind of cognitive space about what's going on. Um, Here we have you know, I, one time I used the term at Notre Dame, I said, wow, we got a lot of like, do-gooders around here. And people took that as a negative statement, you know, like I was saying, you know, I, using do-gooder in a pejorative way. And But I wasn't. I was trying to say, these people care about doing good in the world. They want to do good somehow. And they get that from their faith. And we have that here, I mean, all over the place. And, I, you know, there's certain majors and things that pull for students who really want to serve others. And that's part of our mission statement here is like, it says right in there, one of our key objectives is uh, to prepare you to serve others. And uh, and that comes from the sisters' charisms from their religious identity that guides them and us as being part of their world into service for others. And so, and so I think that's just, um, and, it, you know, these are just one example of how we um, empower ourselves with theology to do good things in the world, you know, however it is that you end up thinking about that.
2: And so. What you're touching upon the, the embodiment of faith and, and, and not so much wearing it on your sleeve but wearing it in your action. It's, it's different from one campus to another. Sometimes differentiating that message for a parent takes a lot of effort that we're not this, this is how it impacts our students. Now, you alluded to the enrollment cliff and, and what we call the second wave of enrollment cliff because we had one in the 70s, obviously, of the baby boom generation. And I, I was looking at literature the past two months. It's pretty much the same exact literature like Aston and Lee talked about the invisible colleges. It's like reading the same books. If I didn't look at the date, I wouldn't even know if it was the '70s or or now, frankly. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, being a president is complicated. You're a CEO. You're a mayor. You're a you know you're a priest. All of it, all in one. And so, um, and and a lot of politics, a lot of finesse goes dealing with the executive board and all of that stuff. So. When you think about the next ten years, because from starting 1925, expected dip all the way to 1931, and so what have you? Yeah. How do you prepare for that, and what are your top three priorities?
1: Well, uh, there's a lot to be said about that, and of course, you, you probably—I mean, I listened to a few of your <laughs> podcasts, and you know, people were talking about it. Of course, it's not. Yes. <laughs> it's the you know you add, there's people always ask you you know. And when you're in a group of presidents, people say, Well, what, what is it? What are the things that keep you up at night? I mean, if enrollment's the first thing out of everybody's mouth, you know, because it is, it's super challenging, and we have a you know, in essence, especially with respect to traditional age students, we have an oversupply of higher education in the United States right now relative to the student body. So, uh, you know, that's that's just an accepted reality at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you do about that? Okay. Well, one thing is, I mean, the main thing is you got to find new markets, what in business terms? you got to find new markets for your products and you got to adjust your products to meet those markets. Right. And so, um, you know, one, uh, who let's, think about who in the 18 to 22 year old, uh, segment is underserved and how can we serve those people? Can we, um, help them find maybe they don't need a full degree. Maybe they need a smaller credential. Maybe it's Hispanic students. Hispanic students are underserved in the United States. Absolutely true. Uh, so let's there's a there's a group we could work with and and bring more of them to our campus. Uh, I think that would be great for anyone to be focused on. By the way, anybody who's looking for something to do out there, <laughs> but Catholic schools in particular, because there is a connection. Um, What about international students? Now that's a toughie because it's so expensive to bring international students in unless they're affluent, in which case, you know they have access to higher education different ways. Anyhow, that's a job. Can we think of some new financial models that would help us bring more international students? I'd love to have more um, thinking about that going on. And then there's people who are not 18 to 22 year olds. Who have different kinds of educational needs, and again, the sub-degree credentials might be part of it. Upskilling kinds of programs, uh, you know, helping uh, people who have partial—they got some of their college years ago and go. And how can we uh, help them finish off? Um, There—that's the territory where online is probably more useful because people can't just drop their lives and come to our campus for a couple of years. You know, they have kids, they have jobs, they have to take care of elderly parents. I mean, there's all kinds of things going on. Um, and so thinking about better ways to meet those students' uh, needs, I think is a, is a real opportunity. And that's, you know, that, that's where we can do some growing. Um, there was one other thing I was going to say, it just went out of my head. Oh, I know, it's, it's, it's people who want to come back to the workforce. We had a program we put up when I was at Marquette for women who had stopped out for child childbearing, child rearing, uh, that were, had been teachers. And there's a, there's an impending shortage of teachers, in some place it's not impending, it's already here, uh, out there, and we thought, hey, I bet a lot of these people would, you know, they, they get to a point where they're done, or their kids are old enough that they don't want to be at home with them all the time anymore they want to you know do they want to come back and do some teaching and but they may be intimidated or they may not be ready they may not be up on the latest stuff they need in terms of credentialing and so let's put together a program that specifically um, tries to meet that population's need to help them come back into the workforce and into the teacher core so that was a program we had in our uh, education school at marquette i thought it was a brilliant idea but that's the kind of thinking about what markets can be out there that could help us help us do better and also help the world around us um, do the things that they want to do and achieve in their lives.
2: Now, when we think about differentiators, so you have a very good academic program and a lot of graduates in business management. Nursing is very big on your campus. Uh, psychology, political science, sports science. Um, how do you differentiate? You, you mentioned you, you live. You're probably located in the most congested. I guess congested is not the right word, but. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, no, I I know what you're saying. You don't yeah, have. Yeah, to say. <laughs> I don't have to say more, right? I mean, yeah. how, how do you how do you stand out? I mean, I know you have, you know, the the, the embodiment of faith. You have great retention, um, but if I'm a parent and I see you all. You
1: know, what should stand out to me? Well, I, I, I you know I've alluded to it in a couple different ways during that okay. course of the conversation, but uh, for us you know it's it's this it is this personal attention, this this small, thick kind of uh, experience that people have here. And you know it, it, you know there, there's this thing I, I don't like to use it because it, it doesn't feel exactly right, but us news, has these all these different ranking systems. And one of the things they have is a list of schools they call it A schools for B students. Okay. And mm. and, uh, and they're intended to be, you know, really great places for students who maybe they aren't the top door ones who are going to make it to the Ivy Leagues or something or the Notre Dames of the world. Um, but they're they're good, solid students. And maybe they haven't had the greatest um, educational environment around them while they're growing up and that kind of thing or they've got some challenges they've had in their lives that that you know they've had to overcome or they're going to have to continue to overcome you know people have problems with addiction or whatever it might be. Um, People who have anxiety issues or have learning differences um, that are going to be an important part of managing their way through uh, higher education, those are the kind of students that this place does extremely well with. And and so if those are the kinds of things that are perhaps worrying you about your student being lost at an Ohio State and nobody noticing that they're having a real problem, um, then this is the kind of place where you can count on somebody noticing that this person needs some help with something, that they've run into an obstacle, they've tripped over something, and they need some help to get back on track and to guide them in ways that are going to make them be successful. That's what this place is about, I think. And that's, it's a, you know, we're not unique. No, no school can claim to be unique and <laughs> people try too hard to be unique sometimes but being distinctive uh, and, and having something that you do have some things that you do really well. You're not the only one. There's other schools that do this stuff very well too. My top 10 in my book, they're all doing this stuff really well. Um, but, 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 but we're one of them. And, uh, and I think that we've got a great claim that we do this better than many, many places. And so it's a, it's a real opportunity for uh, those kinds of students, you know or anybody who just wants to be in a thick tightly woven uh, community. This uh, one thing I just can't get over here is that like students love being here. (laughs) They absolutely love it. And, you know, I've been at other places where students really love it too, but it's a little bit even than a Notre Dame or, you know, they're just so dedicated to the place. And so I just need to get more people to realize that and and come here and uh, allow us to, you know, serve them in that way. I, and I think, uh, you know, they have a great time here. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so, so so that's what I think is the primary distinctive nature of Miss Recordia along with some other things, you know, the, the smallness and the, the religious identity and things like that are uh, important parts of what we do here. Um, the you, know, you, you always have to attend to your academic programs and things too, and you know you just right now students don't are, are less attracted to generic kinds of credentials, and so you want to make sure that you have some niche kinds of elements to that people can pursue. So there's a you know you have a biology major, but it's got an environmental track in it that, that people can emphasize. And we've got social justice oriented things all over this university um, that are, are part of our marker as being a mercy school too. And that, that's another piece of, of distinctiveness. So if you wanna be you know, study entrepreneurship or but you want it to be social entrepreneurship or you wanna study finance and investing but you wanna study socially responsive uh, investing uh, and become an expert there, you know, this is the kind of school that will um, help you develop that kind of
2: angle on things. President Myers, it's been a pleasure, thank you.
1: Well, it's been a pleasure for me too. It's been a lot of fun, and I said in the email, oh, Let's try to have a little fun with it, you know. We <laughs>
0: <laughs> <Pretty laughs> sure did, thank that, you so much. You, we
1: appreciate it. If you bother looking at my crazy TikTok, you'll see that,
2: yeah, it's all, about it. it's all, oh, we're about checking that. it out. Oh, it's, please right. do share. Um, um, and and uh, first of all, I love your energy.